Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin, for leading us in prayer, and Ben leading us in song and the worship team, and it's an honor to be with you guys this morning. It's a privilege to be here. Um, again, Tim Rogers, lead pastor of Grace Point. Welcome those listening online. Glad to have you guys here. Some of you know that I've been at Grace Point for a while. I've been here 18 years. Isn't that neat? It's a long time. I know I only look 25. It's hard to imagine. I started when I was seven. It is true. But um, so when you hear this long, you tend to learn all the nooks and crannies of this place, of this building. Um, and so I've been um, in different spaces. I've actually been in the space right above us, right here, this attic space. We used to have um, quite a few things living up there, but we no longer anymore. I think there's a reason why they talk about bats in the belfry, but if you've ever been up there, that's a good field trip to take at some point. We can get you there if you have a little bit of ability to contort your body. I've been through, um, I've been actually walking over the senior high room, afraid that I'm going to fall through the ceiling into the floor or into the room itself. I've been down, anyone ever been down to the basement area, like the bomb shelter basement area? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little much. It is true that people get scared of the building at night. That's what I've learned, that people love to come to the church because it's a place of refuge in the day, and at night it's like a horror house. You know what I'm saying? Like the lights are off and people are just afraid to walk down the same hallway that hours before they find encouragement and strength to be in. Isn't that true? So a couple of years ago, and some of you know this story, a couple of years ago I came here with my packed lunch, my little cooler full of lunch, whatever in the world it was, like seven in the morning, I don't know, it was still somewhat dark, and I walked from my office, which I'm over here, is down the steps over here, and I walked down to almost directly below me, which is our kids' wing area, and I opened the, the door to where we have our refrigerator to put my lunch, and I'm not paying attention to anything, and it's dark, and I opened the, the door, and whoosh, a bat comes flying out, like just an inch above my head into the hallway, to which I, of course, as a man, I'm not bothered at all by that moment. <clears throat> I think I screamed like a schoolgirl and was like, what in the world is going on? <clears throat> Since then, I've been tentative ever to open that door. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I've got bad memories of that. And here's, here's what I think is true. <laughs> here's what I think is true, that not only sometimes do things like that scare us, the things that lurk in the shadows can be surprising and scary. Things that lurk in the darkness can really can ruin us sometimes. This is why kids at night, they get scared when lights go off and all of a sudden there's shadows in the room they didn't have before. There's someone under the bed or someone in the closet because things that lurk in the shadows scare us. As we get older, the shadows just change and they change to what's inside of you and what's inside of me. The CEO actually is concerned of what lurks in the shadows of the people on his board because while they vote one way, he kind of wonders on their own private time, what do they actually, actually think? What lurks in the shadows of their decision making? And when it comes to the relationships that we share with one another, I am convinced that there are some things that lurk in the shadows of all of our relationships. That sometimes we open the door and don't realize what's about to come, and sometimes it comes flying out at us, and we don't know where it came from or even what in the world just happened. And here's what I want to talk about this morning when it comes to our relationships and what lurks in the shadows, and it's this. That fear that lurks in the shadows of our relationships stifles love. Fear that lurks in the shadows of our relationships stifles love. Now, if you haven't woken up thinking about your relationship in the context of fear, I think you're normal. <laughs> like, most of us don't wake up and think, I have a lot of relationships that have a lot of fear lurking in the corners. A few of us actually process it that way. But I decided to come up with a little list because I knew I was talking about this. That's the benefit of making, you know, me doing this. And here's some things that I thought about as I think about the role that fear plays in our relationships. Here's what I think and see if you can find yourself in any place here. I think fear keeps us from telling the truth, sometimes to parents or to each other. Why? Because we're afraid of how you're going to react. 
I think fear keeps us from trusting again because we're afraid of being hurt again. I think fear keeps me from expressing myself freely because I'm afraid you'll reject me. I think fear makes me compromise where I shouldn't because I'm afraid I won't fit in. I think fear keeps me from speaking where I should because I'm afraid our relationship will be hurt. I think fear keeps me from being bold because I'm afraid I might fail. Fear keeps me, from, keeps me in neutral. I'm afraid I'll take the wrong steps to fix the relationship. Fear keeps me from encouraging you because I'm afraid it will come off wrong. Fear keeps me from making commitments. I'm afraid another better opportunity might be missed. And fear makes me a slave to your opinion of me. I'm afraid to be myself. Fear suppresses my self-confidence. I'm afraid that I'm not enough. Fear reminds me of my shame. I'm afraid of the power of my past. And fear keeps me from pursuing greatness. I'm afraid of standing out as what lingo I've heard of these days as being a quote-unquote try-hard, just someone who evidently tries too hard and shows up other people. Therefore, let's just settle for mediocrity. Fear exists in the relationships that we share. And if you haven't been able to find yourself in any of those, then I think you might be alone. <laughs> you might not be. But here's what I believe that this issue of fear that lurks in the shadows of our relationships can stifle the love that God has meant for us to have both for himself and for one another. And in this series that we're in called When Love Works, we're looking at community of faith that the early apostle John, follower of Jesus John, is writing to an early community of faith trying to figure out what does it look like to know God, to love him, and to follow him in this world. And so John is writing, and in this space, he's going to talk today about the power of fear and love in relationships. And I want to take you right there this morning to jump right into what he has to say. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 John. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. We have a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. You can also open it up on your Version app on your phone or your tablet or any other Bible app that you have. Um, but 1 John chapter 4, it's a little hard to find that, so we'll give you time to find that. But it's in the right two-thirds again. Um, and we're going to be in verse 16b, going through verse 21 here today. And so John writes this, and he begins very uh, plainly. We're going to look at the first two verses together. He says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. It seems to make a lot of sense. And then he goes on to verse 17. He says, this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Now, verse 17 is a little strange. We don't often talk that way. We don't often talk about what the day of judgment will be. It's not a normal lunchtime conversation, and nor do we ever really talk about how in the, this world we are like Jesus. I mean, we talk about WWJD, what would Jesus do, but we don't actually think that we are like Jesus in this way. And so verse 17 is, I'm going to admit, a little confusing, a little hard to understand what John means. And here's what I think he means. Beginning at verse 17, he says, this is how love is made complete. I think it's important to understand that verse 17, when he says this, is referring backwards and not forwards. In other words, what verse 16 said is true for verse 17. So look at verse 16 again. He says, God is love, and then whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. It's this picture of life 
that is regularly lived in God. There's a regularity to my day, to my morning, to my evening, to my midday, being lived, if you will, in God. There's a regularity of saying, I want to, if you will, sit in the discomfort of God's love for me again. I want to be present with God in the moment that I'm in. I want to live in God. And as we do that, this, verse 17, this is how love is made complete. That idea of made complete, or some translations say made perfect, it's the nail is hammered down further and further into my life about how then I should live so that I can have confidence on the day of judgment, meaning that I get, I gain more and more confidence in my relationship with God the more that I'm routinely engaging with him. And this drives my confidence. And in this world, we are like Jesus in that way. So when we more consistently, with greater regularity, continue to live in God, we are like Jesus in the sense that we can show to one another what the sacrificial love of God looks like. Those are big ideas, and they're incredibly complex ideas. And I think this is why John pauses for a moment and addresses the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is this, that John doing this is incredibly difficult to do. In fact, doing this is incredibly scary to do. Because if you want me to love you like Christ loves me, then I have to be willing to take on all kinds of burden that I'm not sure I'm ready to take on. If you want me to be open to you, I have to be vulnerable to you in a way that I'm not sure I'm ready to take on. And so doing this, living in that kind of love truly, not just in my brain, not just intellectually, but truly living with this regularity of choosing instead of to react in anger, to choose to love my neighbor, requires an incredible amount of courage. To which is why I think John writes what he writes next in verse 18, which is a verse we're going to pause and center around. He says this, there is no fear in love. But perfect love, he says, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This verse is so critical to understanding this, and at first I wondered, John, why did you write this? Well, I mean, this is a hard left turn in verse 18. He says, there's no fear in love. Well, was someone asking the question in the room about fear and love? Like, where did this, where did this come from? Why did your mind and heart all of a sudden go to answering a question that I don't know if anyone was asking? And I think it's because if we're going to live daily in the, the work of God's grace, that it's going to take an incredible amount of courage to live in that kind of love with one another. And so he says, there's no fear in love. And then I think, well, why is that? And he goes on, he says, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And I often just don't think of it this way. But as I was processing this, I'm thinking, John is so right. And see if you can relate. You ever have a relationship with your employer where you're like, the only reason I'm doing this is because I'm getting a paycheck at the end of the day? Like, I know that they want me to do this, but it's not, I'm, I'm not responding to the rules because I love them, but because I I'm afraid of punishment if I don't. Like, if I don't show up on time and do what I'm supposed to do, I don't get paid. Like, I get punished. And so his point is, when we have a relationship with people that isn't based in, that is based in fear, then fear is based in punishment. Like, I'm afraid that something bad is going to happen. Which does tend to explain why abusive relationships are so toxic, doesn't it? Because if you have been the victim of abuse, emotional, mental, physical, sexual, spiritual abuse of any kind. You have felt firsthand, and you have lived, and maybe still now are living in the shadows of that pain that has been sold to you as someone who loves you, but what you have felt is fear in the relationship, and what you know is coming is punishment. 
at some point, either physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. This explains why abusive relationships are so toxic, because there is no fear in love. And this abuser is selling you as if they have a love for you, when in truth, they are wounding you over and punishing you over and over and over and over again. This is why if you're a people pleaser, you can be afraid of the mysterious power that other people that you have never met in the room hold over you to punish you for not saying or doing the right thing. There's fear that lurks in the shadows of our relationships. And so as I think about this, I just wanted to drive this down further and kind of make the rubber meet the road for a minute, if I can, and encourage you to ask a question. And I've been asking this question myself too, a diagnostic question, that is where in the relationships that I have might fear be lurking in the shadows? If fear is something that stifles love, where might there be fear in the relationships that I have right now? And let me just give you some examples. And you can decide where fear might live for you. Parents, might you be afraid of the punishment of losing your kids, of being irrelevant to a child's growing needs, of finding that at some point I may not be in their life anymore, maybe to the degree that I want to? Is there fear in the love that you're trying to extend to them? Spouses, might you be afraid of the punishment of being stuck in a mediocre relationship, unable to love because of what it actually demands of you? Kids, you ever been afraid of the punishment of not meeting your parents or your friends' expectations? If you don't show up and do what they want, you're out. There's no fear in love. Leaders, might you be afraid of the punishment of letting people down who look up to you, who expect you and want you to do certain things? But what if you don't? See, is there fear in your leadership? Employees, are we afraid of the punishment of losing a job if we don't perform? Employers, do we use that and hold that over our employees? You see, there's no, there's no fear in love, and when there's the possibility of punishment, then there can't be love in that relationship, which is why John says that love drives out fear. It's as if fear and love are in this space, and love pushes it out and drives it out. Psychologists will actually tell us this about relationships, that all relationships have two factors that kind of dance together. One is this reality that we all are people who are lonely. We have a loneliness. But the other factor in relationships, and there's a dance between the two, is there's loneliness, and then on the other hand, there's shame. And here's how this works in the relationships that we share. That if I am, on the one hand, wanting to walk out of loneliness, and realizing that, and particularly in this post-COVID world, if I can call it that, or we're walking through and out of this pandemic, hopefully, right? That we've experienced a sense of loneliness and maybe sadness and isolation. And even outside of COVID, we all experience loneliness anyway, and we want to get to know people. But the problem is, as I walk out of loneliness and toward you, I realize that if I'm going to walk toward you, I'm going to end up with the possibility of facing shame that I don't know if I want to face. Because in order for me not to be lonely anymore, I have to open myself to you and let you see me for who I really am, which exposes me to the possibility of shame. You may reject a part of me that is very important to me. You may come to know my history, maybe my present, and realize he's not quite the man that he portrays himself to be. I know that I'm not the man that I portray myself to be, but I'm afraid that you might find that out as well. And so what I will do, and what every relationship does, is dances between loneliness and shame. And if I get too afraid, of the potential shame of you knowing me, then I'm just going to moonwalk backwards, right, to loneliness. 
and be like, well, that was nice to know that for a little bit, and here's what people do over and over and over again. You've seen people burn through relationships. It's a movement back and forth to where I get right to the precipice of possible shame. It's too much. I'm going to leave that relationship and go back to being on my own, and then I can't handle that for very long, and so now I'm going to open up again and invite them, but I get close to shame, and then I come back again. And over and over in all of our relationships, there's a dance between loneliness and shame that we play. And here's what happens, I think, with John as he's writing about the power of love and fear. It's as if he's saying, if you're going to leave loneliness and walk towards shame, what if it's replaced with acceptance? And you've experienced this reality in your life. You've seen it happen. That when you leave loneliness and walk toward openness, and instead of getting shame, you actually get acceptance. How do you feel? And the answer is you feel fearless. When you are in love... <laughs> For the first time, for real, or the second time, or the third time, when you are in love with somebody, how do you feel? You can take on the world, can't you? All of a sudden, there isn't no hill big enough that's going to keep me down. Why do you feel fearless all of a sudden? Because there's no fear in love. You are emboldened all of a sudden to tackle things that you never thought you could tackle before. Why? Because you are accepted for who in the world you are. Because this dance between loneliness and shame has been replaced with a dance from loneliness to acceptance. And when you are with people who love you like that, you are truly fearless. And you are empowered and emboldened to do things that otherwise you would never, ever do on your own. And this is why John writes to the young church, church, there is no fear in love. Fear has to do with punishment. This isn't how God has designed it to be. He's designed it to be a place where people, when love works, they can experience the acceptance and not the judgment of God. They can experience the kindness and mercy of a Savior who died for them, who in the worst of their junk looked at them and said, yeah, I see all of your junk, man. I love you. As you are right now, if I'm going to die for you while you're a sinner, I love you. Let's go take on this world together. Now, the question is, how in the world does one do this? How in the world do you move from the dance between loneliness and shame to loneliness and acceptance? And here's where John goes. It's not just trying harder. This is so important what he writes next, and I think there's a real intentionality to verse 19. Look at the text again with me in verse 19. Here's what he says. Very simple. He says, we love because he first loved us. Very simple. This, I think, is the key. We love. Not because we're amazing, not because we've thought about it in the right way, not because we have something written down, but we love because he first loved us. What does that mean? I love the way um, Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian in the 1800s, he wrote about it this way. I want you to listen as I read this slowly to how he talks about the power of God loving us first. Because what I think is the key to this is not that we try harder to love each other, but that we, with intentionality, come back to the story that, shoot, God loved me first through Christ. So here's how Kierkegaard writes it. He says this, You have loved us first, O God. Alas, we speak of it in terms of history, 
as if you loved us first but a single time, rather than that without ceasing, you have loved us first many times and every day and our whole life through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul toward you, you are there first. You have loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at the same second turn my soul toward you in prayer, you're there ahead of me. You have loved me first. When I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my soul toward you, you are there first in this forever. We speak ungratefully as if you have loved us first only once. Isn't he right? When our soul turns toward God, this is where God has said, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. You failed? Yeah, I'm here. I love you first. Yeah, but God, I did, I did this again. I failed in this area again. I thought about this again. I looked at this again. I talked about this again. I did this thing again that I said I wasn't going to do. I wasn't thoughtful enough. I wasn't compassionate enough. I didn't care enough. I didn't give enough. I wasn't enough, enough, enough. I wasn't enough to which God says, listen, I'm here. I loved you first. Do you think you love me first? <laughs> you think you're responding to me? Like, I loved you first. My love drives out fear. And so I want you to come back to tell the story of your first love again. To come back to the cross of Jesus Christ to say it's in the cross of Christ that our stories are told. This is where our hearts are softened. This is where our, our hearts are molded by the refiner's fire, if you will, where we can like steel instead of just bending steel, we can warm it with the heart, the heart of God's love and mold our hardened hearts to see God's love when we come back and tell the story of our first love. And then John finishes this little section. He puts it very plainly. He says, he's very bold here. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That's, about, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty strong. It's strong because God doesn't hate, right? Like I can't on the one hand say that I'm living in God and I'm coming back to the foundation of my first love and then I can't stand you. There just isn't space for it, is what John says to the young church. Can you imagine the difference that would make if everyone who called themselves a Christian could live that way? Can you imagine the difference that would make in our world, in our society? Can you imagine the difference it would make in your home, in our church, in our neighborhood? John is strong. Then he says, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command that anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So I want to encourage you in a couple ways. I want to encourage you this way. Number one, to think about this again, that fear lurks in the shadows of relationships. And when it does, it stifles love. Fear that lurks there in the shadows, it stifles love. It, it, it kills it. It ruins it. I think kill might be the wrong word. If I can back up and can I use verbal liquid paper? Does anyone know what that still is? It doesn't kill love. In fact, I struggled with this word for a long time, and I ended up with the word stifle, because here's the danger. Fear doesn't kill love. It actually allows it to survive, but it allows it to survive in a mediocre fashion. It allows it to look like something, but not real love. Fear doesn't actually want to kill it. It wants you to keep an average relationship. It wants you to keep a mediocre marriage. It wants you to keep friendships with each other that are based on common interests, but not a deeper bond in Christ. Fear wants us to stay in that morass of mediocrity, but fear that lurks in the shadows, it doesn't kill love. It just neuters it, if you will. It stifles it. And this is where John says fear and love, love drives out fear. 
And so this is what I want you to think about in your relationships and to ask this question, number one, put it this way. Is there fear in the shadows of any of my relationships? Is there fear in the shadows of any of my relationships? You can think about it this way. Am I afraid that I might be punished if things go wrong here? If I don't continue to perform in my marriage this way, if I don't continue to lead in business this way, if I don't continue to serve my employer this way, if I don't continue to keep my grades up, if I don't continue to act this way, if I do something, anything of the if I, if I, if I, if I'm afraid of punishment in this relationship, then there's fear lurking in the shadows of that relationship. We have to ask the question, can I really love and can I drive out the fear that God has driven out in me to get to that place of an emboldened relationship where we can together live fearlessly because we love each other? How do I get there? Let me go back to this one. Let me encourage you to revisit the story of God's first love for you. Let me encourage you to do that. I'm, I'm serious about this one. I'm serious. Like, take your phone and set it on a timer for two minutes tomorrow morning and just meditate on the truth that God loved you first. Before you, or during your coffee, before your coffee, I don't care. I'm serious. Take two minutes, set a timer, and meditate on this reality. God loved you first, and he loved you first this morning. And he loved you first tomorrow morning. And how is that going to shape the love relationships that you have and that I have with the people that I'm about to meet that day? God has loved you first. Every time I turn my soul toward him, he is there and has been there. God loved us first. Let me encourage you, revisit that story. Third, and finally, ask this question. How can my love grow in light of God's love, first love for me? How can my love for the people that I'm going to see today, I'm going to see tomorrow, grow in light of God's first love for me? That the perfect love that we have for people can cast out fear, can embolden, <laughs> strengthen, build up this community, and it becomes fearless. Like the kind of fearlessness you see in the heart of young lovers, the kind of fearlessness you see in the heart of people who have found acceptance and take on the whole darn world, right? This is what God has done for us in Christ. He's looked at us and said, I've loved you first. There's no fear in this love. Tell that story to yourself again and then ask, how can that love shape the relationships right around me that we can be people who are fearless with God's love for us and our love for one another? Next week, I'm looking forward to John's continuing story He's going to talk about how to overcome the world, and I'm looking forward to that conversation with you next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to stop and pause in this moment and understand the interplay, the dance between love and fear. And I pray for us because I think fear lives in the shadows of many of our relationships without knowing it, and we open the door, all of a sudden something comes flying out of us. We don't know where it came from. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to revisit the story of your first love for us, to pause again at what you've done for us on the cross, sending Christ for us when we deserved nothing like that. And so may that story warm our hearts with grace and mercy, that the lives we live with our family, with our community, with our coworkers, people in school, friends, parents, grandparents, that we could love to drive out fear so that we can be people who show the fearless love of God to everybody around us. Give us the courage to remember 
the story of your first love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we